industrialization and the growth of economies has been a long-standing research theme within development studies, but little is written about how industrialization can transform ethnic groups within countries. In this episode of the Ideas Between the Lines podcast, Ideas Research Fellow Max Gallian interviews Elliot D. Green about his book Industrialization and Assimilation, Understanding Ethnic Change in the Modern World. The book explains how and why ethnicity changes across time, showing that by altering the basis of economic production from land to labour and removing people from the rural life, industrialization makes societies more ethnically homogenous. Well, first of all, um, thank you very much for Elliot for, for joining us and, and congratulations on, on a really, really fascinating book. It's one of those kind of big topics in development that I think we often get um, that often get left behind as we kind of dig down into the minutiae of particular nudges and interventions. And it's really, really great to be able to take a step back and look at, at look at these larger relationships of, of, of two variables that, that we often we often don't connect enough. So thank you very much for, for joining us. And I'm really looking forward to, to talking about the book. I was wondering, just for our listeners, to start with, if you could recount the anecdote that you start the book with. Sure. Well, again, thanks, Max, for hosting me, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Um, so I started off the book by reflecting back on a conversation I had over dinner in Uganda, in Kampala, more than a decade ago, uh, maybe 15 years ago, I think. I was chatting with uh, one of the people there was an academic, an Ugandan academic. Another one was uh, Andrew Mwenda, who's one of the most uh, renowned journalists in Uganda. We were chatting about um, how one of the associates of the president, I think one of the members of uh, the Ugandan uh, army, had purchased land in western Uganda. Uh, and, and, and basically I asked, why, why would he do that? Why, would, why wouldn't he you know, buy some rich piece of land in the French Riviera or some other parts of the world? And, Basically, Andrew responded by saying, but we are, you know, we're an agrarian country. We, we, you know, land is still important. You know, you want to own land back in your home, home, home area or home region. And basically he was suggesting that, you know, the, the process whereby, uh, you know, land is decreasingly important in industrialized countries, that, that process had not yet occurred in Uganda. Uganda is still a country where, you know, ethnic identity and ethnic politics is tied up with rural land ownership. Uh, in a way that it's not true in more industrialized or urbanized countries. And that, so that, that, that got me thinking about having done my PhD on politics in Uganda and ethnic politics in Uganda, uh, it got me thinking about how Uganda is similar to other parts of Africa in that sense, not all parts of Africa. One of the key uh, case studies I look at in the book is on Botswana, which is quite different from Uganda, but also how other countries around the world have industrialized and how the, in those countries, um, you know, rural land is not associated with ethnicity. ethnicity is you know a, a sort of a, a process uh, the process of assimilation uh, that takes place during uh, industrialization has occurred in those other parts of the world but not in Uganda and so that 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 was one of the conversations that really got my mind thinking about this this old book project and here I am now more than yeah about fifteen years later with the the final copy uh, out in print. So out in the in, in these fifteen years, it seems what has emerged from that initial conversation. Is, is a wider overarching argument that you make around uh, the relationship between industrialization and um, assimilation, and particularly what you call uh, a bottom-up dynamic. Could you kind of summarize that argument briefly for listeners? Sure. I mean, we have, so th there's a large literature going back many decades about how states build nations, right? How states promote a sense of common identity and national identity. Uh, in various policies, the various governments, and how they do it both peacefully and violently. Um, 
And, you know, there's, there's a lot of literature that suggests that that can work in some cases, but in other cases it doesn't work. And, and in fact, actually can produce a backlash effect whereby attempts at simulation uh, result in people getting angry about it and either fighting back or seceding from the state. Um, and I wanted to sort of look at, you know, that that's a sort of political understanding of how nations or identities form and change. And I thought, but there's, there's also a process whereby economic development or economics in, in general, in, in this specific case I'm looking at is industrialization, how that can also induce identity change. And so that that came theoretically, I think, that the two authors I talk most about in the book are going back to the 19th century, Karl Marx, and then more recently in the 20th century is Ernest Gellner, um, using different language. Uh, Marx was talking about the process of capitalism and the class formation, the class identity formation. Gellner was talking about industrialization as well, but he was talking about uh, the, the birth of modern national identity. But basically the same process in both cases, I think if you substitute the word class for nation and Marx, you get you get Gellner, really. It's, it's very, very similar, even though Gellner was explicitly not a Marxist. Um, and in both cases, the idea is that this process of industrialization of, of taking people out of their rural land, the, 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 you know, as I said, I discussed that in the case of Uganda, people still live in the countryside. Historically, in uh, these now industrialized societies, people lived in the countryside. They were kind of tied to the land. They had livelihoods associated with the land. And you, you, you kind of rip them up out of that by industrializing. You take people into the cities, you, you give them uh, urban formal sector jobs, and that changes their sense of identity. They, they actually start to identify more with um, groups that are useful to them in that more urban industrialized setting, and that tends to be larger groups. And so that means that that encourages that process of, of assimilation or homogenization uh, during the process of industrialization. So that's that's sort of the, the main argument of, of the book, which I carry through in sort of qualitative and quantitative uh, evidence. I mean, you were hinting at it a little bit earlier already. Um... But obviously, you, you present this, this account of a more bottom-up uh, assimilation in contrast to how we often think about it in a more top-down model. You're saying kind of more state-driven, policy-driven uh, attempts at assimilation. That is, for many of us, I think, something that's, that's on our mind a lot if we think about modern policies in this context. So I was wondering if you can expand a little bit on what these bottom-up dynamics can say about these policy interventions today. Um, I'm assuming industrialization is something that states uh, might not think of in the same context as they think about assimilation uh, policies. So as they do think about that, what can they learn from this book? Yeah, so the, the again, the top-down model, meaning let's, let's force people to identify a certain way, creating certain policies, um, and uh, the bottom-up meaning where the states are not really directly doing that. They're actually, if anything, we I think we can see states promoting industrialization, or or not promoting industrialization. But that that is sort of an indirect way of promoting assimilation by promoting industrialization and creating incentives for people to re-identify a certain way. Right. And I think that's so. One of the cases I look at in the book is uh, Turkey, mid twentieth century Turkey, and in Turkey, I think it's. It, it, it's a really fascinating case for all sorts of reasons, but one of the things you see in Turkey is you see, you know, sort of violent attempts at, at nation building, especially among the Kurdish population in southeast Turkey. And then you also see uh, the state providing incentives for people to identify as Turkish, but through the process of industrialization, right? So they're promoting industrialization. And this is to allowing people to, to re-identify as Turkish in areas where they previously would have identified as ethnic minorities, 
But in the Kurdish, you know, the areas of Southeast Turkey and areas where the state was actually extremely violent um, in repressing Kurdish identity, if anything, it was it was a failure. Uh, to to the, the attempts at nation building in those areas are really much a failure. And I think the, the Turkish examples exemplifies that that uh, problems that states have had in dealing with minorities, ethnic minorities, and and the way that actually a more peaceful approach uh, that focuses on generating incentives for people. Uh, can be more productive in the in the long term. I mean, Tur Turkey is a particularly interesting chapter in the book, so maybe it's worth staying with that example for just a bit longer. I was wondering, for someone who doesn't usually um, think about uh, ethnic ident identity as as something that's driven by economic incentives or driven by industrialization, if we think very concretely about Turkey, when you say that there the state through industrialization creates incentives for people to identify as as Turkish. What did that mean in practice? Yeah, so in, in, uh, some of it is uh, through laws. So the idea that there are laws saying that if you want to uh, work in certain industries, you have to identify as, as a Turk. Now, that that is a, a law that is not violent. I mean, it's obviously coercive and to some degree, but it's not as if people are holding a gun to your head and saying you have to identify as Turkish, but it's creating incentives for people to identify as Turkish. There, I think, my reading of that is that that was relatively successful. Why didn't it work for the Kurds? It's because there weren't enough Kurds going into those professions. I mean, that is simple as that, that basically people, the area in Southeast uh, Turkey was still very rural and, and agrarian and really kind of economically and even politically cut off from the rest of the country. And therefore there was no modern job, no modern sort of formal job creation taking place in those, in those areas. And therefore those incentives weren't, weren't working, right? Uh, again, people had a, effectively a gun held to their head, telling them to identify as, as Kurdish to some degree, uh, to, to, as Turkish. But uh, that had, a, a, as I said, a backlash effect. One of the interesting things is also, like I said, the, the focus on industrialization, creating incentives for people to sort of enter in the modern economy and identify as Turkish in terms of getting access to more jobs, didn't rely just on these laws about forcing people to identify as Turkish. The, my favorite example here is, is I, I use a, a scatter plot. I, I, I look at provinces in Turkey between 1935 and 1965 because that's the sort of beginning and, and end dates of when the Turkish census actually asked people about their ethnic identity or mother tongue. After that, that the questions were abolished because of its sensitivity. And you see there's a nice positive relationship in terms of urbanization. As these provinces become more urban, uh, people are identifying more as Turkish. And there's two outliers. One is uh, part of Kurdistan where people were killed in a rebellion in the 1930s, late 1930s, and that left it uh, bereft of people. And that's why there's a much higher proportion of identifying as Turkish than you would expect. But the other one is really interesting. It's from the northeast province of uh, Choru, uh, or, uh, in, right near the border um, with Georgia and on the Black Sea. And that's an area that um, uh, was historically occupied by the Laz minority, L-A-Z, uh, and what happened there was basically the a tea industry was created during this time period, uh, which meant that people weren't urbanizing, uh, but there was an, an industrialization in the sense of a tea, tea industry. And the, the, all the qualitative evidence that I have from that region was that people actually were starting to identify as Turkish by entering the tea industry. They, they entered the formal economy, they entered an industrial economy and left their land behind, left their attachment to agriculture and, and rural land behind and instead actually started to identify as, as Turkish. So that's a kind of the exception that, that meets the rule in that sense. I mean, Turkey seems to be an example where this process also happened uh, while at the same time being very highly politicized and being very, very politically salient. 
Yeah. Do you think that is a typical example? Are we meant to think of these um, incentives uh, as something that people are very aware of and that are quite visible in the public space or something that happens more, um, uh, not subconsciously, but more subtly as you interact with different people in the workforce? Yeah, I think that in, in Turkey, we have an example of a country with an ethnic majority and the state is trying to assimilate or homogenize uh, various minorities, um, which is something in the realm, I think at that point of maybe 15, 10 to 15% of the population, right? Um, so the vast majority of people identify as Turkish already. We have other countries which are like that, right? Um, where uh, one of the cases I talked about where we don't see assimilation is Somalia, right? In that sense, we see actually fragmentation uh, and the argument there I make is that we do see nation building policies. We see clear evidence on, in the 60s, 70s, uh, up until the 80s even, of a government which is trying to create a stronger sense of national identity. The most obvious example is a literacy campaign in the 1970s where the Somali language was systematized uh, and there's a huge in, in increase in adult literacy under the president, uh, Siad Barre, uh, and various other nation building policies. But the fact that the country remained incredibly poor possibly one of the least industrialized uh, countries in the world at that point, um, meant that there was simply no uh, urbanization, there was no industrialization, people remained tied to the land, and therefore the state, when the state started to sort of fall apart in the 1980s, people clung to their clan identities. And so Somalia basically fragmented along clan lines. But that's again, like Turkey, we have a kind of ethnic majority. We have other countries where there is no ethnic majority. We have countries like uh, large parts of Africa or other parts of the world, uh, where there's no uh, direct or clear sort of assimilatory policies that the government is pursuing, but we still see evidence, I think, there that in some cases we are seeing assimilation through industrialization, in some cases we're not. Um, there's other cases which I look at in the book, two cases I look at about uh, native or indigenous populations in settler societies, and that is the Native Americans in the US and also the Maori in New Zealand, and those are interesting because we see that, again, processes of assimilation that are taking place, but this is not necessarily driven by state policies. In fact, what I'm arguing, this is what I mean about the sort of the, the problems associated with state policies. And sometimes we see state policies that are promoting assimilation and they fail. And here is the opposite case where we see basically state policies that are not promoting assimilation, yet assimilation takes place. So in the case of um, both Ma the, the, among the Maori and among the Native Americans, we see this process, in, in those cases, I would de definitely tie that up to urbanization. As people leave the rural countryside and they move to cities, uh, evidence that they start to identify more as part of that broader category, in the US at least, of, of Native American, that becomes more salient to people than their tribal identities. And that is by no means something that the US government uh, promoted. And the same thing in, in New Zealand. So we see, in, in both cases, we see uh, evidence that state policies are not having the effect that they were intended to. I mean, one of the things I just really liked about the answer you just gave is that you're already kind of giving a hint at what I think is one of the most fascinating parts of this book, which is it's it's sheer diversity of case studies. I mean, it's, it's so common that you read a book which starts with a brief introduction about why case A and B are the cases we should look at, and you get a very, very strong sense that these are the cases the author always wanted to write about and was always going to write about. Um, and your book really kind of does this kind of broad cross-country overview that then zooms into cases that are particularly interesting um, from, from the perspective of, of its wider conceptual argument. Uh, as you just, I mean, as we mentioned, from kind of Turkey to Botswana to, to Maori communities in, in New Zealand. 
I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the selection behind these cases. Um, and I'm also assuming that for you, that may meant um, a lot of your, your previous work has been in particular on, on Sub-Saharan Africa. That meant engaging in, in new contexts, which is something that we, we, we often don't nearly do enough. Were there particular surprises? Were there particular things that challenged uh, what you thought was going on before? Yeah. Yes, I, I, I think the it's been really a, a, a labor of love for me to sort of expand my knowledge across uh, outside Africa and into other cases. I, I yes, you're right. I, I began my career as a with my PhD was on politics, ethnic politics in Uganda. Hence the anecdote that started the the book. Um, and part of part of the yes, I, you're absolutely right. A lot of this literature on on ethnicity, nationalism. In fact, lots of topics in the social sciences uh, is often purported to be global or universal, but actually you dig down and you read people's books and it's actually specifically about a, a, a specific part of the world, right? And so, you know, that's not to say that we don't, we don't need, you know, studies of, of various large phenomena like ethnic politics in some part of the world. Of course, that's incredibly important, but it, it can be difficult and dangerous when people want to uh, take those uh, regions or the evidence from those regions and and say that it applies universally. So my goal here was, yeah, I do have the quantitative uh, chapter where I use quantitative data from around the world, two different sets of quantitative data, uh, one of which is from uh, the Soviet Ethnographic Atlas, and the other one is a self-constructed original data set of all country censuses in the world uh, since 1960 that have data on ethnicity. Um, so that that's an attempt to sort of make this a, uh, a global project, but then I thought, that's not enough. If I, if I then I just go on to just looking at case studies from Africa, that's not going to be very useful. I, I need to produce evidence from, from different places in the world that will actually demonstrate that this is a broad process that applies not just in one part of the world, right? So yeah, I have the 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 cases from Africa. I mentioned two of them already. I have the well, actually three. It's it's the two sort of quote unquote negative cases of Somalia and Uganda. Negative meaning where we don't observe industrialization and every, therefore we don't observe assimilation. In fact, we, we see increased uh, fragmentation and fractionalization. And then we have the positive case of Botswana where we do see the industrialization and assimilation. So that's variation within Africa. I mentioned Turkey. The reason I originally chose Turkey was actually uh, because of data. And I think I mentioned this in, at the beginning of that chapter that I wanted to look for. So we have this cross-national database many countries, dozens, uh, over 100 countries in the world, um, I wanted to find a comparable kind of case uh, at the subnational level, where we could track evidence over time according to province or region or whatever you call it uh, within a country. So in that case, I, I use uh, urbanization as the measure for uh, industrialization within countries, uh, because the, the measure I use across countries, which is carbon emissions per capita, I, mean, I have other measures too, but that of course, we don't have that data at the subnational level. So I wanted to find a country which had good data across time on uh, urbanization or some other measure of industrialization uh, at the province level. The number of provinces had to be large enough that it was a meaningful exercise. We couldn't do this in, you know, Malawi has three provinces. That's, that's meaningless. But you have to have a country which has a large number of provinces. And most importantly of all, you have to have data over time on ethnic identification or, or mother tongue as it is in, in Turkey. So Turkey was the only country which really fit those categories. Now, it was, uh, it, of course, it also has to have uh, take place during a time of industrialization. It's fine if you want to use data on the U.S., for instance, about 
you know, racial identification, but that only goes back uh, so so many years, and that's uh, uh, you know for a country which is already heavily industrialized. So you want to have this um, data during a process of industrialization. So Turkey fit the fit those criteria. It also was a qu interesting qualitative case, as I said, it allows you to dig into the data in that sense. Um, so that was the reason I chose that. Um, again, I could have chosen other contexts. I, I did try to talk a little bit about uh, Europe. Uh, in in the uh, one of the chapters of the book, historical evidence uh, from around the world, but especially in Europe, where I touch upon several countries in Europe, but only briefly, because um, I realized the the limitations of of how long the book should be. As it is, I think the book is over a hundred thousand words. It's about a hundred and ten thousand words, which is slightly above average, I think, for books of this nature. Um, the 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 key point, though, that I want to get to the last two chapters, the examples of Native Americans and also the Maori. Is because we these are rare examples of in 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 the style of my argument rare examples of basically deindustrialization. Deindustrialization. What I mean about industrialization, as I said in my answer to your question a few minutes ago, is the process by which people move out of agriculture, move to cities, move into the modern economy, basically, right, and leave uh, uh, you know uh, agricultural employment behind. In some sense, what I'm saying is industrialization is a process of de-agrarianization in that sense, right? It's not about necessarily what industrialization is, it's what it isn't. What it isn't is attachment to the rural land and working in agriculture and basically being um, in, in the countryside. Um, most of the time that's effectively a one-way street. Countries become industrialized and then they stay industrialized. They might move into the service economy, right? Uh, but they don't really go back to live, having people work in the country. So people don't really, you know, there is a tiny bit of rural, uh, urban rural migration in in developed countries as people might move to the countryside, but that's effectively balanced by urban by rural urban migration. So effectively, these countries are not becoming less urban. Um, that's not, as I said, that's that's the normal uh, way countries industrialize. It's very rare to see the, a, a different uh, sort of kind of reverse uh, uh, of that. And in fact, that's what I found in those two cases of the Native Americans and the Maoris, we actually do see uh, urbanization, people um, urbanizing and industrializing as they move to the to, from the countryside to the city. But in both cases, we actually do see a very rare examples of deindustrialization driven in both cases by government policies. So in briefly, um, in, in among the Native Americans, it's the creation of Native American casinos, uh, which come in the 1980s, roughly. Uh, and that means that all of a sudden, this tribal land, as we know, the history of Native American reservations were created largely on worthless or very poor quality land, right? Um, that land, historically very of low value, all of a sudden is given a huge amount of economic value because you can create casinos, but only on tribal land. So all of a sudden, the land goes from being almost worthless or very low quality to being extremely valuable. And that leads to that sort of return to the land of many Native Americans where they had previously moved to the cities and now some of them literally move back home or they reassociate themselves with the uh, tribes that own these very valuable land now. The same thing in New Zealand. In that case, it's not casinos. It's about fishery rights. Roughly the same time, late 20th century, uh, 1980s, 1990s, the, the New Zealand government starts to allocate fishery rights, which are, you know, looking at the geography of New Zealand, very valuable. Uh, they're assigning fishery rights to indigenous uh, iwi uh, or tribes of, of the Maori. Um, and that means that the tribes that have 
certain lengths of coastline are getting a lot more fishery rights than others. And that, uh, that again, induces or gives incentives for people to uh, return literally or metaphorically to their um, previous sort of tribal identities and sort of in that sense, deindustrializing because the rural land is becoming uh, reinvigorated with economic value. So th those are the reasons why I chose the specific case studies I did. Again, I could have made the book longer, but I think that would have put a lot of pressure on the readers. But I thought this is the way to sort of try to pick cases from different parts of the world and therefore show that this actually is a global process. And they're also such fascinating case studies because they, they're so essential to, to kind of understanding and demonstrating, I think, the mechanism and the logic that, that makes up your, your wider argument. But also, as you said, they're, they're outliers in a way. Like we're not seeing a lot of deindustrialization in, in your term of, of industrialization nowadays. We, we live in a world with increasingly industrialized societies um, and um, largely kind of a one way direction from, from less industrialized to most more industrialized. So I was wondering, your book makes an incredibly convincing case on these connections in, in, in a larger historical context. I was wondering if I could tease you just a little bit to talk about um, where we are now and where we're going from here. So your book ends on um, an observation about actually a quite heterogeneous pattern uh, globally. This kind of heterogeneous pattern of increasing ethnic factionalization in the Western Hemisphere. So a context where we do have a high level of industrialization, but now see an increasing level of kind of ethnic refactionalization, which we don't necessarily see in, in much of the rest of the world. Could you expand on that a little bit and, and say a little bit about what you think is driving that difference? Yeah, so the I, I look at the, in, one of the things I do in the conclusion of the book is I try to, uh, as you say, I sort of look towards the future and say, where, where is this process heading? And so one of the things I do is I kind of interact in a quantitative sense, I'm, I, I use the data that I previously used, the global data on census data, which goes right up to the present day and sort of interact uh, the time trend, but in the technical sense, I'm interacting the time trend with the measure of industrialization. And what I find is that uh, effectively, as we get closer to the present, as time goes on, the effect of industrialization on ethnicity is diminishing. Right? That's that's the that's the result that I find. Um, and then, so I suggest, is that a global trend, or is this something that's being driven by certain parts of the world? And so I find that actually that seems to be driven by uh, what's happening in the Western Hemisphere, in North America and South America. Now. One of the things that, that is problematic when we talk about ethnicity globally, one of the reasons why I think a lot of people, when they talk about ethnicity, they talk about it in specific regional contexts, whether it's Sub-Saharan Africa or Eastern Europe or Latin America, is because ethnicity is different in different parts of the world, right? We think of, for instance, in India, when we think of ethnicity, people think of caste, right? And caste is not associated with uh, land or territory in the way that uh, ethnicity is associated, say, in, in Africa, right? So caste politics can be very different from ethnic politics. Uh, caste politics in India can be different from sort of what we might call tribal politics in Africa, right? Um, what makes the Western Hemisphere different in this sense is that, yes, we have concepts of ethnicity, but here is the one part of the world where it really is tied up with race. Race meaning we have a smaller number of categories. These categories are very wide, right? Whereas in Africa, we have many multiples, dozens of ethnic groups but they're all basically part of the same sort of African or, or black race. In, in Western hemisphere, we have, you know, smaller number of groups of racial groups, but they encompass large numbers of people, whether it's white, black, of course, across Latin America, we have this mixed mestizo category, and then we have indigenous or native peoples, right? 
So I think one of the things that's happened arguably in, in the Western hemisphere is we have started to see an acceptance of more um, multiracial categories, uh, which again, Latin America, that's been going on a long time with the concept of mestizo, but in the English speaking parts of the Western hemisphere, now we start to, to accept multiracial categories in a way that previously people didn't. I think it's in 2000, the US census allowed for the first time people to tick more than one racial category. So people could identify as multiracial and previously they couldn't. And that's a process, not just the US. I think you see this in other parts of the Western hemisphere as well. People beginning to realize that we can have more than one uh, category. Uh, we can be part of one more than one race. We can include race, multiracial categories in censuses and surveys. And that's, I think that's something specific to the Western hemisphere because again, race is such a broad category that it, it, it encompasses so much diversity within it, it, it actually doesn't reflect people's lived or, or understood experiences in a way that, that don't apply elsewhere. So I think that the fact that, again, I show this quantitatively, that it, this, the idea that um, industrialization has having a decreasing effect over time on uh, homogenization is really limited to the, to the Western Hemisphere. Outside the Western Hemisphere, I think this process is still continuing. In the Western Hemisphere, it's a bit different because of this nature of race and ethnicity being the same. Um, it's interesting to hear you talk about these kind of different buckets, different categories and, 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 and the size of them and how they're changing. You also speculate a little bit in your um, conclusion about other forms of identity. So one was wondering if you could say a bit about the wider argument that you make here around the relationship between industrialization and ethnic identity, and if that might also have insights for us about other forms of identity. Yes, that's right. I think the... Um, we, again, the, the, the argument, just to make this very clear, this, this argument is tied up with the way that industrialization um, transforms where people live and how they work, right? In terms of livelihoods and also the fact that they move from countryside to the city, right? Previously, they would have identified uh, with an ethnic group that was tied to that land, and now they're not working on that land. They're not associating with that land. They're working in the city, and therefore their identity depends more on the job that they have in the modern formal economy, right? Um, it's hard to say that that would apply to other forms of identity, right? We can say that, uh, you know, the structural transformation of industrialization and urbanization would, would obviously lead to different forms of identity over time. I think that, you know, I, I, I touch upon um, uh, some examples in the book. I mean, you could say there's many obvious examples whereby, you know, you, you take people who previously would have been a very small minority and you put them into a city and they're more able to find each other. That was, I think, the most obvious example of that is, is gay, gay rights, right? LGBTQ plus identity. When people previously would have been extremely small minority in the countryside, they come to a big city and they realize there's other people like them, they're more likely to identify that way in a way that they wouldn't have done so beforehand. Um, it's still, I think, the process of industrialization and urbanization generating that identity change, but not necessarily the same way that I'm talking about with ethnicity. Um, there's also, again, I touch upon this in passing, there's an interesting book by the American sociologist uh, Rogers uh, Brubaker called Trans, uh, published about seven years ago, I think, um, where he looks at, he contrasts the example of transgender and transracial identity. So he talks about, it's a very American-centered book um, about comparing uh, the case of Rachel Dolezal, who was a person who was born uh, as uh, white, but later identified as African-American. And so she was, quote unquote, outed, uh, uh, you know, when living in, I think, Washington state. 
And then she, he contrasts that with the case of Caitlyn Jenner, who again was born as a man and then re-identified as a woman. So we have transracial versus transgender. And he's asking, why is it that we seem, we seem that the general public seems to be accepting of uh, transgender identities, but we're not accepting of transracial identities. And it's a very interesting question that he raises. And again, I think that's part of the reason I brought that up was to talk about specific um, dynamics of identity that are taking place in the Western hemisphere, in that case, the US, but I don't think it's just the US. I think it's across uh, North and South America, but also the way that, you know, the process of industrialization and urbanization can engender, can create, I, I think, identity shifts that are not just limited to ethnicity. Um, yeah, to, to bring you up even more kind of to, to the present day, um, I mean, we just had council elections in, in the UK, and it seems like uh, incumbents across the country, be it uh, uh, the Conservatives in, in many wards, be it the, the, the Green Party down here in Brighton, have had, had a very difficult time. And there's been some speculation that the fact that we've all spent a lot more time at home over the last couple of years, that we've all spent a lot more time in our home councils, um, ha might have had an effect on that. And it made me wonder a little bit more about the wider argument um, about the return of, to the land that you speak about in the book, that, you know, this this kind of relationship with a local community relationship with the land um, is, is a really, really critical factor um, uh, in in kind of ethnic identity formation and then something that goes away as, as we kind of move to cities and this kind of traditional industrialization narrative. If we kind of look forward to the, the economy we might be moving into, this kind of increasing in, information economy, a, a world in where we can live uh, um, in a different place where we work, where we can work from home, in which case maybe during COVID, a lot of people moved back to moved back to the countryside or working remotely, um, but also in which our interaction um, with the people that we work with might be quite global. I mean, you mentioned uh, kind of LGBTQ communities and the ability for from communities that might be minorities in a particular geographic context to connect themselves um, through, through the internet more, more globally. And I was wondering if, you can speculate what the effect of that will be on on the relationship uh, between kind of the land, our work, and and identity, be be it ethnic or otherwise, going forward. Yes, I think that's right. I think there's uh, again to what to, 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 yes, the, the idea that we can come together in cities, right, and and basically that we come together in in, in the modern formal economy in cities, and then people sort of find that there's different identities that are more salient to them because they're living in that, that different environment, the urban industrial environment. Um, that, that argument that I make in the book, that can theoretically, yes, you could, you could say the same thing in, in terms of people living uh, pre-internet and now going onto the internet and finding again that there are certain identities that are more salient to them on the internet. Um, in that sense, yeah, that, that's not, again, not just minorities, right? Again, you could say the argument I just made a few minutes ago about LGBTQ plus people previously being isolated in the countryside and having moved to cities, you know, the internet allows them not to be isolated, even if they still are in, in the countryside, right? They can find their brethren on, on the internet in a way that they previously couldn't. Of course, that applies, as we all know, that applies not just to, to people, uh, racial or gender, minor, sexual minorities. It's also in terms of political uh, affiliation. We know that one of the things the internet has done is also engender people to find the extremists, right? So the right-wing or left-wing extremists are finding each other on the internet and previously they wouldn't have been able to do so um, in a way that, uh, you know, these are identities to some degree, again, comparable to LGBTQ plus identities that perhaps people don't want to affiliate with in public because of and the LGBTQ plus examples because of discrimination, 
right? And sometimes because it's illegal, um, like in the case of Uganda, unfortunately. Um, but you also see like the right wing, you know, the idea that we have right wing identities that people don't feel that they can express in public because again, it's not it's not savory, it's not acceptable, uh, but they can do that online. So I think that 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 is something that, you know, that that is possible. It still doesn't really address the issue what I what I said in the book about livelihoods. The idea that when I say about the process of industrialization, it's about how people are um, effectively changing their work habits uh, from being uh, working in a job that's tied to their ethnicity, tied to the land they work on, into a one that's not. Right. I think it's both Marx and Gellner talked about floating army of workers. The idea of almost use identical language. The idea that we when you have an industrialized economy, everybody effectively becomes the same, right, in terms of their ability to take up certain jobs, right? Of course, that's unskilled labor, but even skilled labor people uh, theoretically could all have the potential to do so, right? So the internet, yes, we have, of course, an internet economy, but it's not, it's not, it's still a, a small fraction of the overall economy, right? The idea that uh, the internet is changing people's livelihoods and therefore uh, affecting their identification in that sense, I still see as something, it, it can happen. Uh, maybe it's not something that's happened as of yet. Thank you. I, I know that was, uh, I kind of pushed you towards quite a difficult kind of projection into the future, but I think it, it's been really interesting to think about in that context. And I think one of the things the book does does really well is kind of take us from kind of the, the 18th century, of, uh, 19th century of, of Marx to the 20th century of Gellner to uh, to the very modern political dynamics uh, that you describe uh, describe today. Thank you so much for, for uh, chatting with us today um, and, and providing an overview of the book. I hope we've given people an, a bit of an insight on what's in there, but not quite so much that people are not interested in uh, reading it. And nonetheless, the book is Industrialization and Assimilation, Understanding Ethnic Change in the Modern World. And it really is it's a fascinating read. I cannot um, recommend it strongly enough. So thank you very much, Elliot, for, for talking to us today. And um, I'll end here. Thank you, Max. It's been a wonderful conversation, and uh, I look forward to hearing from, from listeners if they have any further questions. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a feature that you'd like to appear in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at betweenthelines at ids.ac.uk.